0: It's that time of the week again, and once upon a time there are two guys that went inside EMS. One guy was uh, he was mean, you know, he was kind of mean. He's got a, he's from the south. Uh, he actually migrated to the north. The other guy is uh, very humble, very modest, a very good-looking guy with a great sense of humor. Uh, one is Chris Subalera, one is Kelly Grayson. You can figure out who is who, which is which. But have we got a great show for you today, KG? What's going on up there in the Empire State? Are you a Jets fan yet?
1: Uh, no, but I am. I am pretty uh, happy for them beating the Bills. Uh, pretty darn awesome. Um, looks like they're they're scratching, and clawing, and uh, doing a heck of a lot better than that other New York team that seems like it's circling the drain. So.
0: No, 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 no. There's no there's no bad mouthing New York sports teams. It makes no difference who you root for. Now this is this is just an education. You support all New York sports teams,
2: even the Bills.
0: Yeah. Everything, everything. You know, you got to talk about the Islanders. you got to talk about the Rangers. You know, you may even squeeze in the New Jersey Devils, but that's a whole other show. But uh, we're excited uh, for everyone to be here with us today. If you're watching us on video, thanks for joining us. But uh, you can see we've got a couple guests. My friend, Chief Dave Lewis, he's the Assistant Chief of EMS at the St. Charles County Ambulance District, one of the premier EMS agencies in the state of Missouri. And uh, when I was at Christian Hospital, I was always kind of chasing them for best practice. And, uh, you know, Kelly Gaines, he is the director of community relations. And they got a program out there, I got to tell you what, that if you're in the community space, really, it has to be duplicated, because this program has been running for a long time. I remember when it started. And just more and more, we're hearing about the great things that are coming out of it. It's called the St. Charles County Mobile Integrated Healthcare Network for SUD, OUD, and Behavioral Health. And Chief, I think the first question goes to you, right? So when you think about this from the standpoint of substance abuse and behavioral health, how did this come about as part of your community paramedicine uh, vision?
2: Oh, First and foremost, this was a passion project to save lives. We were, just like every other EMS and fire department across the country, five, six years ago, we were inundated with overdoses. It used to be that you would run more uh, uh, hypoglycemic cases than you would overdose cases. And now, fast forward 20 years later, that trend is different. We run a whole lot more overdose cases now than we do uh, patients who are high, hypoglycemic. So, with that, we've seen those trends going up. And one of our one of our rock star paramedics came to us and said, "Look, I'm seeing this trend in the field." And we were seeing it in administration. and We put our heads together and said, "You know, we we've got to do something." We looked across the nation to find best practices, and one of the practices that we found came out of Colerain Township, Ohio. Where they were sending a paramedic and a social worker and a law enforcement officer on overdoses with the intent to try and get these patients into treatment. And we said, well, you know, there's our answer right there. We need to be able to uh, touch these patients and help get them to the treatment because without it, we're just, uh, you know, rinse and repeat over and over again, running these same overdose patients. Right. Well, that started back in 2017 and we quickly, quickly found out that not That Those patients didn't embrace that model with law enforcement tagging along. They were less than open, less than honest with us. So we dropped that portion of it. And then we quickly found that the social workers didn't have the capacity to respond with us on all these overdose calls. So it necessitated our paramedics become specially trained to be able to have those hard and tough conversations, getting those patients into treatment and linking those with those providers. So that particular program started out from those humble beginnings back in 2017, and it's grown ever since.
0: Yeah, and I got to tell you, I mean, like you said, I mean, I was across the river at Christian Hospital in uh, North St. Louis County, and I said this from the very beginning when I arrived in 2010, I have never seen the amount of overdose in my career as I've seen in this area, right? And it just... It just went ahead and went across the river. It knows no bounds. But Kelly, I mean, when you think about this from the standpoint of community paramedicine and how people are doing this work, you know, I think we've got a great story here.
1: Yeah, um, Kyle, uh, Chris and I have, have covered this before. You can tell that, that I, Chris has me on the brain since he
0: called you Kelly games. <laughs> uh, oh, did oh, he? Um, I'm sorry, Kyle, I'm sorry all right. I don't, I don't want to mix you. I don't want to mix you guys up that's for he, sure.
3: normally my, my shirt says K gains and I normally get a lot of Kevin whenever I'm out in the community so
1: it's okay it's a new K game in the mix all of us handsome, stellar paramedics tend to look alike and, and get mistaken for another yeah Chris and I had talked and, uh had talked about your program I forget the name of the paramedic who who uh who came to y'all oh, what was her name the Lisa Cassidy yeah yeah and um uh, we we lauded the program back then. I was wondering what was in, in your role as a, the public information officer. Um, have you have you had any pushback or or, or have you had buy in from your uh, from your team in doing this? Uh, one of the things I've noticed in, in talking about uh, risk uh, risk reduction and and safe injection sites and that sort of thing is that uh, still a whole lot of paramedics tend to look at. Uh, opiate uh, abusers as as something less, you know, and they think we're enabled. You, have you run into that?
3: Um, absolutely, on the onset, I think every organization faced a little bit of that or, or a higher degree of that. Um, but one of the things that made the substance use recovery response team a success um, in those early infancy years was the fact that before we rolled it out, Lisa and her team worked with some of our community uh, mental health partners and brought all of our team members in for face-to-face training on addiction. And I really think that made the big difference because Lisa got a lot of feedback uh, in those after those initial trainings, people that just flat out said, I had no idea because a lot of these folks uh, in their paramedic programs, some went through five years ago, some went through 10 years ago. Some upwards of 20 years ago, and said that the amount of mental health training they had gotten in their programs was really rather limited, and that the the training that we put all of our people through was truly eye-opening for them to really delve down into the science. Of the
0: yeah, that's very yeah. interesting. And, and and just so you know, Kelly, I may have got Kyle's name wrong, uh, calling him Kelly, but you got his title wrong. He's the director of community relations, not the PIO. Okay. But yeah, so, I mean, we're we're one for one now. So we're, let's see what I can screw up with you today, Chief. So so when you think about it, you guys have been doing this program, you know, as Kelly said, we talked about it when it first happened and, you know, it was all over the news. And we wanted to be able to watch it closely. And now, really, you're setting the standards for others to follow. So if you think about this, do you have any numbers you can share with us or, or the successes that you've had? I mean, because now the program is, what, six or so years old. Um, and just the amount of work that you've been doing again, really sets the standards for others to say, we got we gotta uh, you know, duplicate this program in our system.
2: Sure. So post COVID, we would see around half the patients that we encounter agree to, be, uh, to to be enrolled in the program. And then half of those patients would actually end up getting to sit in front of a treatment counselor. So about one in four patients that we would come across, we would have success with. That was pre-COVID. After COVID, those numbers have dwindled, and it's become more challenging uh, to get patients to agree to go to treatment and then get them in front of those counselors. It's been difficult. Uh, We've actually seen our numbers decline when it comes to calls for overdoses in the field one of the anecdotal factors that we attribute that to is the readily available narcan in the community now when and we're one of the we're one of the distribution sites for public narcan and we encourage it but one of the tenants that come with that is we urge folks to call 911 too because those patients are going to need medical support and care not only recovering from their overdose but thereafter and our fear is that's the part that's missing when the public uses Narcan and they don't call 911, the patient wakes up and no one hears from them again. So we want to get that word out there that even though that public Narcan is available, you need to, you need to engage 911 and get those paramedics going. Otherwise, the opportunity for linking that patient to treatment in the moment is is slim.
0: Yeah, and it's really it's really just a, I didn't mean to cut you off, Kyle, but it's really just the, the team approach to it. We're thinking that a box is going to make a difference. It's not just the box, right? It's the support structure. But I didn't mean to cut you off, Kyle. What were you going to say?
3: Oh, I'm sorry. And and I was just going to piggyback on to what Dave said. And honestly, I think there is still a great degree of, you know, even if it's a family unit, if it's a spouse, if it's another loved one, there's still stigma. There's still that embarrassment factor that, this is a, this is something that someone, a loved one, a family member is struggling with. And I think that's why that 911 call is not being made. They feel like, okay, I, I administered the Narcan, I did what I needed to do. Uh, they've come around. We'll try and work through this on our own, we'll try and work through this together. We don't want our community to know that we're struggling. And that's what we have to try and get past um, as a society, because this is, this is something that's, incredibly difficult to go at alone. I think any, anybody listening to this podcast is well aware of that fact and has seen those folks that have those, those terrible withdrawal symptoms that, that are struggling, that have the, the GI symptoms, chills and sweating and, and everything else and that's why we say please, please activate time. Let us let us come. Let us try and provide that support system right at the time of that uh, after successful revival.
1: It's kind of a, kind of a double edged sword. You, you would like people to, to reach out to you, uh, when they utilize the Narcan you distributed, uh, yet they're not. I, but I suppose you, you have to be happy with, with at least some, uh, reduction in calls, you know, any, any progress is good progress. I was wondering, Kyle, is, um, how, how your mental health and, and, uh, and health partners in the hospitals and, and everything have Receive the program? Are they majorly in favor of it? Are they happy with the results? Um, our our partners that we've been working with from the onset of this
3: uh, Preferred Family Health, uh, Compass, and a variety of others, both in our region and outside our region, have have just been tremendous advocates of this program. They have talked about it in in their circles, just like we've talked about it in our EMS circle. Um, a lot of what we do here at the Ambulance District, not just in the realm of substance use disorder treatment, but a lot of our programs center around collaboration and partnership. It's finding those those key partners within your community to work with. And when we come together on things, um, really good things have been our experience.
0: It helps when you come off mute, but one of the things that you also get is you find that a lot of these community partners have resources that aren't being used, right? Yeah. And that's one of the big components of community paramedicine is connecting with those community partners, those community programs that we're able to connect our, you know, our our uh, members with, our patients with. But you know, chief, one of the things that you talked about was you know you trying to get people enrolled in the program. And I guess I should have asked this question from the very beginning. Maybe just to outline what does this program entail. I mean, how long is it, or, or what do you, how, does, how do you guys go about it? So we're telling people that they need to duplicate what you're doing, but we really didn't get to the crux of what the program's about.
2: So the way our current program is, is structured is a patient overdoses. They call 911. Our 911 paramedics respond. They revive them, and it, it's there at the scene in that moment that they have the conversation with them that there's opportunities out there to get into treatment and we're happy to be that helping hand and that link to get those patients into the seats at those treatment centers into those intake uh spots and talking with those counselors we know all the different uh, resources that are in the area what they specialize in what their different niches are, and we can help those patients make those decisions. We found that our success was one in four, and it's dwindled since COVID now, but the biggest gap that we found is the delay in us talking to them on the scene and actually getting getting them into that treatment center. We lose so many patients because once we give them Narcan, we make them sick, we throw them into precipitated withdrawal. And that's just about every service in the country that comes across an overdose patient. If that patient is chronically using, the minute you give them Narcan, you're gonna throw them into precipitated withdrawal and they're gonna be getting sicker and sicker and sicker until they use again. So the number one thing that's on their mind at that particular point in time is, please get out of my house, I need to get well. It's not that I need to get high again, It's that I need to get well. And that's where we've lost the majority of our folks. And we've seen it time and time again, year over year. Even back in 2017, we said, man, if we could just duplicate what's going on in the treatment centers right here, we could save more lives. And back then, those were inpatient spots. That was the gold standard back in 2017 was to get patients into a treatment center with an inpatient bed. In the next 18 months, the model changed to where it was no longer an inpatient bed, that was the gold standard, but it was medication assisted treatment in an outpatient setting that you could stabilize patients, get them off of the illicit drug, get them in more of a stable lifestyle to where they could attend counseling, they could become functional, they could become stable and start seeing the different benefits of staying away from illicit drugs. And those were the models that started to change even more lives and have even greater success. And it was the advent of medication-first assisted treatment that got that going. And once the outpatient opportunities opened up, we had even more spots that we could uh, send our patients to for treatment. But it wasn't enough because it didn't fulfill that gap from the time we gave them Narcan, made them sick, till the time they sought to be well. We knew at the time medication assisted treatment was working. We seen it after the fact, but we were powerless to do anything about it in the moment because of the laws and regulations, some of which dated back to the early 1900s with the Harrison Act that prevented those kinds of things from happening out in the field by paramedics. Fast forward to 2019, 2020 with the advent of COVID and the pandemic, A lot of flexibilities came out of the pandemic with CMS and some of the federal laws and regulations that allow for telemedicine and medication to be prescribed and administered via telemedicine where the requirement was that the patient had to present in person first. Well, when you start having those kinds of flexibilities, those were the opportunities that we said, we could do even better. We could close the gaps in these spaces if given the opportunity, fix the patient's issue in the moment, stabilize them with medication first, and get them across that hump, whether it's a an overnight or whether it's a three-day holiday weekend, or whether it's a week long to open up a bed or a, or an outpatient spot in a treatment center. That was that was what we were targeting. And that's what we were trying, that's what we've been trying to do since 2017. And with the advent of the COVID flexibilities, we see that as our opportunity to really make an impact on the space. It was not only us seeing that opportunity, but other EMS agencies across the country seen it also. Pioneers like California, like New Jersey, they started working in that space before we did here in Missouri and showed great success. And those are the pioneers that we're following now.
1: Okay. Dave, you mentioned uh, mentioned the the Narcan administration uh, um, causing precipitated withdrawal, and I think a lot of our listeners, a lot of EMS people in general, don't don't appreciate the fact that opiate addicts, uh, once they're addicted, they're they're not taking the drug to get high anymore. They're taking it merely to not get sick
0: and and not feel the not feel the pain.
1: Not feel the pain. So I'll throw this one to Kyle. Um, now you've got this this grant, this one and a half million dollar grant that's going to allow you to administer bupren- buprenorphine uh, as medication assisted uh, uh, addiction treatment. Um, tell us how that works. I'm actually going to kick that one over to Dave
3: because that that is much more his area of expertise okay. in this uh, in this arena than mine. Mine's more on the uh, the public education
0: side of things. Okay. So and chief, and chief, before you do that, I think I think Kelly's question is poignant. But one of the things that I think maybe you can throw on top of that is, you know, what made you apply for this grant? First off, I mean, yeah, we're really trying to look for ways to fund our programs, and you know, is it is it hard to do it? There's a lot of people that probably would apply, but if you can kind of hit those two points, I think that'd be awesome.
2: Sure, for for us in the moment. We knew that we were losing patients because we couldn't stabilize them on the scene. The minute we left, they were going to go seek to get well. We needed to have a way to have a paramedic be able to respond and provide medication-assisted treatment in the field, but not just medication-assisted treatment. One of the things that we've learned, especially with our substance use re- recovery and response team, that was Lisa's team that led this charge since 2017 with connecting patients to treatment. One of the things that we've learned using that Rockstar group of folks was the different needs of that particular patient population. What we've also learned is through our mobile integrated healthcare provision of community paramedicine, through our other Rockstar team with our, with our MIH team members of, of Kimberly Tyne and Sherry Hercules, we've delivered mobile integrated healthcare community paramedicine to patients who were high utilizers, who were uh, uh, had, had high risk of readmission or risk of uh, returning to the hospital after discharge because of uh, confounding medical issues. So we've been working in that space in the community paramedicine space, not just with overdose patients, but also with chronic disease patients, getting them stabilized, looking at social determinants of health, looking at care plan compliance, looking at medication compliance. So when you look at the patient, you've got to look at the whole patient and the services that they need in order to be successful. You can't just look at one part of it. And historically, we've all been siloed and we've looked at one part of it. In order for this particular program to be successful going forward, We needed to be able to offer this service 24 seven and have a specialized paramedic be able to be on call as a single resource that's out there available 24 seven. And that's what the grant's gonna help us do. But it's not gonna allow them to just administer medication assisted treatment. It's gonna enable us to provide uh, those assessments to look at social determinants of health, to look at what barriers are gonna be in place that, that will be in place that we can remove so that this patient can be successful in their pathway to care. That's the type of service that's gonna make these patients be successful and it's multifaceted. So we combined our specialty overdose team with our mobile integrated health team and we're putting their, their, their brains and their education and their resources together to focus on this particular population, but not just when it comes to substance use and overdoses, but with behavioral health and with high utilizers, so we're coming at it from a multi-faceted effort, and with that, we'll save more lives.
1: Okay, I want to punt it back over to Kyle, so so Kyle, and this, this is in your court, you can hit this ball, um, uh, what are your strategies, now that you have this additional capability of administering the buprenorphine, um, how are you getting the message out to those uh to those uh users who, who may have been reluctant to call you in the past what's your what's your approach to that
3: well reaching you utilizers is is typically the, the largest majority of them are going to still come in via 911. however we pair that with a pretty substantial um you know communication effort here within our community uh using our broadcast our trade. uh Great organizations like yourselves, um, uh, magazines, print, things of that nature. Uh, But it's also grassroots marketing. It's getting in front of groups in our community, which is something that we've done via the substance use recovery response team, basically since its inception. It really, uh, even before our our forays into the realm of treatment referral, we were in the prevention education game. Uh, those discussions with youth audiences talking about, you know, not even once when it comes to heroin, fentanyl, things of that nature. And that conversation has evolved over the years because when we started this, it was all about, we still got shirts that say stop heroin on the back of them. And now it's no longer heroin that we're talking about. Then it it evolved to heroin laced with fentanyl. Then it was, we were just straight up, you know, now if if people are buying fentanyl, um, actively seeking fentanyl out. Now we've got um, Xanax and other uh, designer drugs that are are being laced with fentanyl. So the the conversation continues to evolve that we have with our youth audiences and tackling that prevention angle. Uh, We still do some of that prevention discussion um, with older groups as well, uh, Chambers of Commerce, Rotary Clubs, those your traditional types of audiences that you can get in front of. Uh, But we still largely focus on preventative Efforts on our youth population and trying to help them understand just how dangerous the game this really is, and we do that in collaboration. Again, I, I speak a lot. it's probably the, the word I use most frequently around here: our collaboration and partnership. Um, but it, it really does uh, it does work, and we do that with our school districts. We do it with the DEA, based out of St. Louis. We do it with our local law. We do with our fire department. Now, all of us come together for things like our teen drug summit, which is something that's put on, um, you know, by our uh, CRUSH coalition, Community Resources United to Stop Heroin. That's, uh, that group formed, again, as the name suggests, back when heroin was a big conversation point that we were having. And that group puts on that uh, countywide teen drug summit that sees 500 or so students from sixth through eighth grade uh, coming in. And then they... That They carry that water back to their classmates each year. Uh, we also work with a couple of uh, school districts individually on, we call them our mini-team truck summits, and those are at uh, junior high buildings uh, throughout the community. Not every school district opts to do that, but uh, several of them do. Uh, we are always willing to take on more partners, and uh, is, it, is it a lot of work? Of course it is to uh, get into all of those buildings and deliver that message face-to-face. Uh, but there's some conversations that just... That are tough conversations that should be had face to face and not via not via video, not via you know something that we just trot out the same curriculum year after year. There's something about hearing it from the, the paramedics who are seeing um, the terrible aftermath of this day after
0: day. Yeah, that's very cool. And you know, Chief, knowing you for as many years as I have, you're very uh, um, you share a lot of your stuff. You know, you're you're very open. Uh, when people are coming to your place to kind of check out. I mean, you've got a cathedral over there for an EMS uh, department now. I mean, it's beautiful building. Uh, You know, you were kind of the, uh, you know, one of the architects of making that happen. And, you know, you're very good at sharing stuff. So if people want to learn more about this program and maybe try to, uh, you know, have you guys be a mentor as, you know, New Jersey's and so on are doing for you. I mean, is there a way that they can get in touch or what's the best way they can learn more about this program?
2: Chris, the best way is to email either myself or Kyle directly, and we'll certainly reach back out. We're an open book when it comes to our programs and processes, because it's one thing to be able to save lives in our backyard, but if we can save lives across the state and across the nation, we're all doing what we've been called to do. This this grant for us has had, uh, there's four different legs to it. The first leg is actually providing care in the field to these patients. The second leg is harm reduction. And the third and fourth leg is education, both public and to the medical profession. So one of the things that we wanted to focus on through the grant is education of first responders and all medical professionals. We've come a long way, but we've got a ways to travel when it comes to educating our first responders and our medical professionals on the science of addiction. That is chemical changes in the brain pathways that cause predictable responses that are not controlled by the patient anymore, but become physiological demands their body and brain will work to get outside of what might be considered the, the reasonable means. By any other name and definition, this is a chronic disease, one where patients can't get well on their own and need professional medical care, treatment, and medication to overcome the degradation of their normal physiological pathways, and get them stabilized and in a place where they can get back on track to start to manage themselves, their lives, and their care again. That's what we seek to do.
0: Very uh, cool, man.
1: Chief, you, uh, you've, you've highlighted what should be a model program for the human system around the country, and I applaud you guys for being proactive in caring for your community, rather than our traditional reactive after the fact. Um, you guys, listeners, you've heard what we think. You've heard uh, what, uh, what we've, we've brought to you about this program. We'd like to hear what you think. What kind of steps are you taking in your communities to combat the scourge of opiate and substance abuse? Um, we'd love to hear your thoughts at the show at EMS1.com. And for myself, co-host Chris Civilero, Chief David Lewis, and my fellow member of the Initial KG Club, Kyle Gaines, (laughs) we're going to catch you guys next week.